listen. The world is talking. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War is a war filled with romantic images, brave soldiers, wise statesmen, weeping families back home. <clears throat> Excuse me. Things that reenactors like to recreate, that dreamers like to dream about, readers like to study. But the war was also filled with horror, with pure evil in some cases. Today we'll study a character, Champ Ferguson, guerrilla soldier. We'll talk with the author Thomas D. Mays, author of Cumberland Blood, Champ Ferguson's Civil War, on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, the Brewster Building, home of the History Department, uh, enjoying a nice spring-like day in March of 2009. It's the last day before spring break, and the students are eager to take off their excessively heavy clothing that they put on when the temperature gets below 50 uh, and head to even sunnier climes. Uh, I, with many of the other staff and faculty, are looking forward to the, uh, the quiet that will ensue as people leave Greenville and the uh, the libraries are not thronged with people going to get coffee. Um, libraries have turned into coffee shops, even as coffee shops have turned into libraries in the last 10 years. Uh, everything is, is changing around us. Uh, but spring break is still a welcome, uh, welcome time of year and a welcome uh, respite. It has been a, a grueling semester, not just here on campus at East Carolina, but at universities everywhere and indeed uh, in every household, I would say, in the country, dealing with the economic crisis that we are all facing. It uh, affects state universities, it affects private universities, and it affects every family. Uh, but we're dealing with it here, and it makes a chance to uh, get away from all the uh, administrative uh, worries for an hour and, and get back to what we're really here to do in the history department, talk about the past, talk about the Civil War. Uh, a welcome uh, one-hour vacation here on Friday afternoon. Before we get to our subject today and our, our guest, we have a very uh, interesting book to talk about. Uh, I want to uh, go through the usual uh, 
Housekeeping, first the legal disclaimer, just because I'm using ECU's phone does not mean I speak for them, nor do they speak for me, and I'm sure the university of our guest has its own opinions, and uh, his might be different. Likewise, uh, thanks to everyone who has sent donations into the show to help uh, support uh, some of the things we're doing, particularly the purchase of books to talk about. Uh, you can send those to civilwartr at aol.com using PayPal. It's very efficient. Uh, some folks uh, send stuff in regularly, and, and that's very welcome and much appreciated. If you haven't, feel free to uh, send a little bit this way, and it will go towards uh, supporting the academic content of the show. But as since tax time is drawing near, I should also say it's not a tax-deductible contribution. There's no organization here. I could, in theory, just buy uh, a recreational vehicle or something else with the money, and no one would be the wiser. So uh, you can't deduct it, but you can contribute it. Uh, in addition to contributions, suggestions are always welcome. If there's someone you'd like to hear on the show or some subject you'd like to hear discussed, please feel free to send it. Uh, send it along. Uh, the one way to get in touch with the show soon, if not already, is through a new auxiliary website, cwtr.org. Uh, Bob, the, state, the, the show's unofficial webmaster, has prepared this site, and perhaps I'll use the spring break hours, a few of those, to get into that site and actually put up some data there. Right now it's, it's just a shell, a good-looking shell, but a shell, but eventually we'll get the names of shows and who's been on it you'll be able to follow things more easily. Uh, several people have written in the last month asking about uh, past shows and how to find them in the archives. And I'll put up a description of that as well on cwtr.org so you can find that. And last, as we go through the, the housekeeping, uh, come by and see me. If you're in Greenville, drop by the Brewster Building and say hello. And if you're uh, not, and I'm in your part of the country, uh, please come up and say hello after the talk if you get a chance. The Did Lincoln Own Slaves Bicentennial Tour will be in Gross Point, Michigan on March 18th at the Gross Point Historical Society. Uh, the next night, March 19th, Austin, Texas at the Civil War Roundtable there. April 14th, the Loudoun County Civil War Roundtable in Leesburg, Virginia. April 25th, Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, part of a big uh, uh, Lincoln Bicentennial Symposium, very much worth uh, worth visiting. Uh, Vernon Burton, who was just on a couple of weeks ago, will be there. I, I really enjoyed talking with him, and I'm looking forward to seeing him there. Uh, many other people, uh, David Herbert Donald is scheduled to be there, Drew Faust, Jim McPherson, and so on. Uh, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable. Uh, May 12th, the Richmond, Virginia Civil War Roundtable. Uh, and October 22nd, the Dorsey Pender chapter of the Civil War Roundtable in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. All places I'll be talking and looking forward to meeting some of you there. Well, we've taken care of the business now to the pleasure we get to today's guest, uh, joining us from the Department of History at Humboldt State University is Thomas D. Mays. Dr. Mays, are you there? Yes, uh, greetings from the left coast. Wonderful. Uh, we're here in North Carolina. You're in California. We're able to communicate through the miracle of the 
the Internet and telephone combined. Um, I'm looking at your, your book here, Cumberland Blood, Champ Ferguson's Civil War. And on the dust jacket, I see the uh, very nice picture of you and what I imagine is your office. Um, I've studied it really carefully to see if my book is in the shelf behind you. And I, uh, uh, it's on the other wall. I it's on the other wall. That's an excellent answer. Um, what I notice most, though, um, Tom, may I call you Tom? To, is that acceptable? Call me Jerry, please. Uh, is it says you are uh, chair of the Department of History there. Yes, I am. And uh, I've been acting chair here for two years, and uh, what a world. Uh, how long have you been chairing your department? Well, this is my first year, and uh, as you said in your introduction, this is a real pleasant vacation from the uh, the uh, constant issues that we're, we're dealing with, especially during this economic time uh, for all of us working at state universities and private universities, uh, uh, some difficult decisions are, are being made right now that uh, uh, make moments like this a real joy to step aside. It, it, it is. And I can't, for this to be your first year, this is, you know, last year for me was was uh, you know a pleasure cruise compared to this year. Uh, we're facing you know, how many of our temporary faculty we can rehire and how many we we can't rehire and all kinds of questions like that. I'm sure you're in the same boat. We are, and, and if you follow the news, uh, this Humboldt State University is part of the California State University system and part of uh, the uh, bizarre story of public funding and uh, the state's financial situation in the last couple of years. It, it's, it's cruel of me to say this, but you know we're here gnashing our teeth over... Uh, uh, what, what we're looking at is, I think, a 7% budget cut, and I, I'm guessing that would be a walk in the park for you guys. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to deal with that. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's hard enough, so I, I can only imagine. But as, as I said, we're not here to uh, uh, intrigue our listeners with stories of, of our day jobs. We're going to yeah. get away from these grim subjects and get to the happy story of a man who killed uh, <laughs> people in cold blood, uh, Champ Ferguson. Uh, I have been reading about the Civil War for, uh, I guess, 40 years, and I don't think I've ever encountered a more disagreeable character than the uh, the main character of your book. Um, so let me start at the be- before the beginning and ask what what got you interested in the Civil War, and and uh, follow that up with how you came across the trail of Champ Ferguson. Well, uh, if you look at the dedication of the book, it's to my late parents, Robert Lee Mays and Sylvia Bragg Mays. Uh, <laughs> came from an old Virginia family uh, on both sides and literally grew up on my grandfather's knee in southwest Virginia, visiting him on his farm and hearing the stories of the Confederates. He grew up near Salem's Creek. Uh, and it, it had been a lifelong pursuit of mine. Uh, in graduate school, I was very, very fortunate to attend Virginia Tech and work under James I. Robertson, Jr. Uh-huh. I, in the early 90s, got a chance to do some research on local history in southwest Virginia, where I was living at the time, uh, and began writing on the Battle of Saltville, Virginia, for my master's thesis. And he played a bit role in my thesis. He came in and began butchering wounded prisoners on the field, and... Uh, I, later, uh, Virginia Tech only has a, a terminal master's program, although it's an outstanding history program. And I went on to work under uh, the colorful Grady McWinney at uh, TCU in Texas, where I was talked into continuing work on 
the subject and follow the, the story of, of Ferguson, and, and that's where I really got into the meat of it. Uh, where I really hit pay dirt was at the National Archives, where I came across the complete original handwritten transcript of the trial, and that was it. Uh, so, um, well, your book starts with uh, with the the end of the story, with the the trial and execution, or at least the execution of Champ Ferguson uh, for these war crimes that he committed. Um, but let's start it at the beginning for our listeners uh, who who may not have heard or may have just maybe heard the name uh, casually uh, here and there. Uh, who was Champ Ferguson? Ferguson was like so many uh, Southerners living uh, in eastern Kentucky uh, along the Cumberland River when the war began. Uh, he, I guess to, to use a term of the, of the time, he could be called a cracker, although he was financially pretty well off, but uh, enjoyed a lifestyle that many of the church-going community wouldn't approve of. He was involved in horse racing, gambling, uh, and may have kept his own still. He definitely lived this, this almost stereotypical Highland uh, lifestyle. And prior to the Civil War, he owned slaves, was on the rise, uh, if, if you look at the census material, in comparison to his brother and many others. But uh, even prior to the Civil War, he ended up getting into a confrontation with some neighbors in neighboring Tennessee uh, who had swindled him on uh, uh, a hog deal that had gone south. They'd simply taken the, the hogs and never paid for him. He got court order against them in Kentucky and began attaching their property. In Tennessee, they translated that into horse dealing. At a famous camp revival in Tennessee in 1858, Ferguson showed up. Uh, the Evans boys, who he was having this problem with, saw him, brought in the constable, wanted to have him erase, arrested. Ferguson was out back drinking. That's what he did at the, uh, at, 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 at most religious services. And the next thing you know, this ends up in a bloody confrontation with Ferguson killing this guy. So even before the war began, he had a murder charge against him in Tennessee. And his life just went on from there. So he, he's, he's hot-tempered. He's, uh, he likes his alcohol. He's willing to, to commit violence. Um, but he's also, uh, he's said, up-and-coming. He, he's got more land than a lot of people in his county. Uh, he did own slaves, which not everyone did in the, in the, the mountains and Appalachians, Tennessee or Kentucky. Uh, you write in, in your book about the division that takes place in those counties and how somebody of his, of Ferguson's uh, economic level might go one way or the other when the war begins. How did that work out for him? One of the most fascinating things about this, and one of the reasons I'm glad I really held off pursuing a lot of this research for several years, is, is because a, a group of historians have done some really good work into this Area and one of the things I discovered was that uh, uh, Kevin Noe and others have found that there was a social economic divide between many of these people we, we call guerrillas when the war began, and many of the southern guerrillas were pretty well off, and many of those who chose to to follow the north were not. And so the perfect example is Champ Ferguson and his brothers. Two of these guys remain loyal to the Union while Ferguson, on the other hand, who was the up-and-coming guy, uh, chose to go with the South and, and take up arms. Yeah, uh, Jonathan Sarris wrote a book about northern Georgia a little while ago. He was on the show 
year or so back, and uh, I remember him saying uh, much the same thing that many of the the people who were successful in in the pillars of the community in these uh, North Georgia mountain counties were were likely to go with the Confederacy, but others didn't. And so so with, even within Ferguson's family, they split. Yes, even within the family itself. And as a matter of fact, his brother, one of his brothers, was with the Kentucky Cavalry Unit, was killed during the war. Uh, and it was real interesting the way they divided up. And the brother was always penniless. And his brother was a Whig. And Champ said, I was a Democrat. Uh, Champ said at one point he was opposed to secession when the war began. But after Sumter and beyond, and when pro-Union guerrillas attempted to, to, to capture him, he, he sided with the South. Whereas his brothers remained loyal to the Union, and, and he did he did get captured early and very early in the war, uh, or at least a group came to to try to arrest him. Is that right? They did. It was another one of his forays, I believe, back down into Tennessee. Uh, according to Ferguson, if, if he he had made an agreement with the local political leaders, if he joined the Confederate Army or supported the cause, they would drop the murder charge that was hanging over his head. And at one point, after riding with some of these guys who were guerrillas themselves, they captured him. He eventually escaped, but swore he'd never again be taken alive, and then began his own personal local war on pro-Unionists, first in Kentucky, and then when he's driven out of Kentucky and Tennessee. And I was fascinated by the description of the, the border counties there in, in Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, just south of the Cumberland River, that... They, they really do capture the, the the image of the Brothers' War, the, the, the individually divided communities, uh, where not only do they uh, do, do they divide within a town or within a county, but having divided, then no further opposition to the majority view is to be tolerated. Uh, you use the term political cleansing to, to describe that. And it can be mapped. And, and traced to the primary sources. Uh, there's one journal by a woman by the name of Mary Catherine Sproul and uh, remained in, in a pro-Southern area around Sparta, uh, Kentucky, Sparta, Tennessee. And she writes about uh, her father, who's a staunch Unionist, the fact that she was a staunch Unionist, literally being driven out of the area. And the same thing, we, we see the same thing happening with Champ Ferguson being driven as a pro-Southerner in Tennessee, in the neighboring county, south into Kentucky, and there's a lot of evidence of this. So, so you've really got this just divided area. You, you have that description of Horace Maynard, the, the Tennessee Unionist congressman, trying to come and give a speech, and in one town, uh, uh, they 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 won't let him speak. They they threaten to to kill him, I guess, if he if he speaks. But then he goes to the next town, and he gets a hero's welcome. It is, and it's it's. It can be mapped out in that area, and there's an area that's open for study. Uh, some could really come up with a fascinating local uh, study of that entire area along the border and how it divided. And what what really makes this significant, it seems to me, is the, the intensity of the feeling that these people don't tolerate their neighbors, who they've known. I, I just, we'll talk about Ferguson's career, this will come out, how... These people know each other that they're killing. It's really not a, a soldier's war where you're shooting uh, a mini rifle over 300 yards at someone. Uh, this is face-to-face with people you know. 
it's, a, it's worth exploring, and we'll explore it a little further. What we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come right back with our guest, Thomas D. Mays, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. I ain't killed but 32 men, said Champ Ferguson during the Civil War. He killed them in cold blood. We'll find out more about this cold-hearted killer when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Thomas D. Mays, author of Cumberland Blood, Champ Ferguson's Civil War. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the borderline between Kentucky and Tennessee at the start of the war, the divided region where uh, within the same county, the same town, even the same family, people split in their loyalty between the Union and Confederacy. And having split, they tolerated no further dissent, uh, drove out their opponents, and in some cases killed them. And in particular, we talked about Champ Ferguson, uh, who would go on to a uh, career as a uh, guerrilla uh, fighting, uh, I was about to say fighting for the South, but uh, I think he's fighting for himself and happens to take advantage of the war uh, environment in which to do that. Um, Tom, when the war begins in 1861, you, you talk about how the uh, Union draws a... Uh, uh, or rather, the, the Confederacy initially moves into Kentucky. Listeners uh, who know the Western Campaign will remember that uh, uh, Johnston moves up uh, to Bowling Green, and then uh, uh, Zollicoffer holds the right end, the, the eastern end of the Confederate line, uh, along the Cumberland River. But the Union, uh, therefore, has no jurisdiction, no, no way to enforce the law south of the Cumberland River. And the 
uh, Tennessee government doesn't apply there. So you've really got this no man's land, this this territory in southern Kentucky where there's literally no law at all. The, the courts aren't operating. Uh, it's a state of nature. Uh, that certainly contributes to Ferguson uh, going off on his killing spree, does it not? Absolutely, and I think you touched on a, a key point of the entire work, and it's the geography of the area. He's not in the Cumberland Mountains, per se, but he's in the Cumberland uh, foothills. It's a really, really rugged territory out there. And the, the Cumberland River is a natural dividing line. And if you look east, especially in, in Tennessee, you're seeing a strong Unionist area as well. So it's an area that both sides... Uh, really don't have a whole lot of civil or military control over during the war. And in the meantime, much like what we saw in Missouri, or Missouri, depending on what part of the state you're from, the locals take up arms. And they do, and this means you've got uh, uh, armed men on both sides uh, with no no controlling authority. Uh, so So people in a sense, can kill who they want to. And, and Ferguson starts doing this. How, how does he get his wartime career underway? That is a, a matter of some type of specul- some speculation even since then. The fascinating thing is one of the things that got me involved in the entire story was the lore that surrounded it. According to many people who still hold this to be true to this day, such as a, a SCV camp called the Champ Ferguson camp, uh, Ferguson took up arms after the local home guard militia, Union militia, uh, came to his home and accosted his wife and daughter and forced them to strip and walk around the house several times naked and, and they infer that they were raped as well. Uh, these stories are still circulating and, and they're an absolutely fascinating part of the tale. The, one of the fascinating parts of this is these stories circulated during the war. And when Ferguson came into contact with uh, Basil Duke while riding with Morgan, Duke actually recorded this as his motivation for killing in his memoirs. And others spoke about it as well when they saw him killing unarmed civilians at Saltville. And I followed this as far as I could. And the, the, the end where it came to an end for me was when Ferguson was interviewed by... Uh, several reporters prior to his execution, he denied it. He heard about it. He laughed about it and said, no, none of that ever happened, and, and, and laughed it off. So there's a justification, at least told he, contemporaneously. As he's alive, people are saying he's doing this to avenge the honor of, of uh, the women of his family, but it's not true. But it's not true, and if it were, we would have the closest thing to a Josie Wales the Civil War ever saw. But it's not true. So it's not true. And there was the other story you mentioned uh, of uh, a, soldier, a Union soldier killing his three-year-old son, and we're pretty sure that's not true. He had a son who died well before the war, so no, there's no way that would work. But these stories are, are still out there and are part of the entire Champ Ferguson story. So um, he, so that's not why he does it. So what does get him to go out and, and start uh, uh, start shooting at people? He, for many of these people, and even many Unionists in the area, because Ferguson's not the only one, and the pro-Confederate whites are not the only ones who are butchering people here. The Northern Unionists have a lot of blood on their hands, too, in this area. For example, Ferguson's number one nemesis from Tennessee, a guy by the name of Tinker Dave Betty, he and his large extended family take up arms as well. They literally have 
only what I can really call a gang war between them uh, throughout the war and even beyond the end of the war, well beyond the end of the war. After Ferguson is dead, many of Ferguson's followers possibly signed up with the Klan, and uh, Tinker Dave Betty's followers continued to fight him. So th- th- it became a long, drawn-out drawn confrontation. For these guys, the war wasn't at Gettysburg, the war wasn't at Shiloh, the war wasn't with the armies, the war was at home and to see who would control at home. So, so there are all these other overlays of pre-war relationships, of, of economic uh, disputes, of personal grudges uh, that cause these people to, to want to fight one another. Well, I'm not even sure that the pre-war antagonisms are carried over into the war. Some of Ferguson's worst enemies, like the Evans brothers that, that he got involved in with, with the killing in Tennessee, became some of his closest friends during the war. Hmm. So I'm not sure if it's pre-war feuds that carried over, more or less pre-war political views that carried over. So the politics is what motivates initially, at least. Yeah. Now, that brings up a point uh, about not only the causes but the effects of the killings. Uh, you, you make this point that when uh, when Ferguson or any of these people, whether northern or southern, uh, kills someone, uh, say uh, so, some of these victims, uh, Wood or Frog or some of the other people that, uh, that that Ferguson kills, in some cases by breaking into their homes, accosting them in the sickbed and shooting them as they sit there defenseless. Uh, this may eliminate an enemy in the short run uh, by, by killing the person before he can kill you, but it creates a whole new set of enemies because now the victim's family swears vengeance. Exactly. So, so, so it just gets worse. It did for Ferguson the entire war. And to the point, even areas where the civilian population had seen him originally as a defender, such as Sparta, Tennessee, the area that pretty much housed him and his followers throughout the war after he was driven out of of Kentucky. Uh, Repercussions by relatives, uh, repercussions by the Union Army, who started really waging war on the civilians who were supporting him by the end of the war, uh, turned many Southerners against Ferguson and his gang. And I even found accounts where Confederates writing through or recording in their journal, everyone is Southern, but they're all agreed that they're opposed to Champ Ferguson. So they, they, in that case, it's, they don't want the, the vengeance that he's bringing down on their community, the, the, the Union soldiers coming in. Yes. And the price is too high. But you've also got the individuals who might be on the fence at the beginning of the war uh, until Champ Ferguson kills their brother or kills their cousin. And, and now they know which side they're on now. They're, they're against him. They certainly are. Some take the field. Some begin pressing the governor of uh, Tennessee. Some begin pressing uh, the, the federal government, the federal army. Uh, and there's a great written record of people documenting atrocities by Ferguson throughout the war and pressing for union action against him. When I was reading it, it made me think of, of any any kind of guerrilla conflict um, where you have this problem, uh, whether you're fighting guerrillas in, in Tennessee or uh, in uh, Vietnam or conceivably in Afghanistan today, uh, uh, not to equate the, the, the forces fighting uh, for the United States and Afghanistan with people like Champ Ferguson, 
but simply to say that if you deliberately or inadvertently kill a civilian, you mobilize 10 civilians to, to get off the fence and become active in the cause. And it's just very hard to stamp out any kind of uh, political movement by killing people one at a time, because each killing seems to mobilize others. Uh, I think using that argument, you could argue that Ferguson was his own worst enemy. He probably created far more enemies than he ever dispatched. But he, I'm guessing from what you've written here that he probably wouldn't care if you pointed that out to him because he wasn't necessarily he wasn't a Southern patriot or partisan. I mean, it, it, that wasn't his motivation. It really wasn't. One of the fascinating things about the newspaper articles written in Nashville at the time of his trial and interviews they had with him and the court uh, documents from his trial, the, these. Reporters and even the, the New York Times, everybody had people down there watching him. I'm looking right now at a cover uh, of the Harper's Weekly from September 65 of a portrait of Ferguson. The whole country was watching at that time. And, and as the trial progressed and the country was following it, each one of the murders was described in detail. Ferguson then described the murders, was asked about the murders by uh, reporters prior to his execution, and every one, he, he, he said almost the same thing over and over. Yes, I, I killed Frog. Uh, yes, I killed this guy, and I killed him because he would have killed me under the same circumstances. At one point, he said, I took time by the forelock. There's nothing like being on time. It's pretty simple to him. So, so he's, he's fighting for Champ Ferguson. He's not fighting for the Confederate Republic or anything like that. Uh, fighting for his home family and neighborhood, I would say. Uh. His neighbors. He was very, very, very loyal to uh, guys he had fought with. There was a Union lieutenant that Ferguson killed in cold blood as a prisoner of war after the Battle of Saltville in a hospital at Emory and Henry College. Ferguson went through the door, walked through the Confederate guards, walked by Confederate uh, hospital stewards, found Smith. Smith recognized him. He said, Champ, what are you doing here? Smith laid back with, with a, a deadly wound. Smith was a former brother-in-law of Ferguson's first wife or brother of Ferguson's first wife. Ferguson slowly and deliberately uh, killed the guy with, with a musket at probably two inches from his head. A uh, little background research would show that uh, this guy, Smith, had shortly before this killed one of Ferguson's best friends who had been captured and then supposedly tried to run away. So, so the loyalty is to his friend and he's, he's, it's a vengeance killing. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, Saltville. Um, Ferguson, through most of, of his career, as you describe it, is, is just on his own hook, riding with a few few allies and, and committing these depredations individually. Uh, he doesn't really serve, he never serves in an official Confederate unit, uh, as far as, as, as your research shows. Is that right? I found uh, and held in my hands an original uh, Confederate muster roll with his name on it as captain. But the areas where you state the name of your colonel and your regiment, all of that's blank. But he did have a, a, a muster roll. This muster roll was seen, or a muster roll like it was seen, uh, as by a Confederate when he's trying to raise a company in 1862 as well, and it, it comes up in his trial. He always argued and said to the end of his life he had been authorized by Morgan to raise an independent company. 
when Morgan made his raids into Kentucky, all, all the way up to the Ohio raid, he took Ferguson along as a scout. And Ferguson committed atrocities while he was with Morgan's men. But whenever Morgan would retreat back to Kentucky or southward, Ferguson's guys would be dropped off. So in that way, he held, held an official or semi-official scout or guide role with the Confederate Army. By 1864, the Confederates were gathering up all the troops they possibly could. And by the time of the Battle of Saltville, Ferguson had been thrown in with the regular uh, cavalry. So he, he, so he does serve, in a sense, under Morgan, but he doesn't take orders from Morgan. He always claimed to, but then when you compare what he was saying about it to, let's say, Basil Duke, no, he's not. So, so he's, he's very much an independent contractor here, uh, doing what he wants to do. And that became a major issue during his trial, who authorized you to raise uh, these forces. We kind of get into something in the 20th and 21st century we're quite familiar in hearing. I was just following orders. Well, he couldn't name a commander, so it was hard for him to say I was following orders. Yeah, the, as you said, the sheet, the, the muster roll has no... No regiment entered on it. It's a company without a regiment, uh, without a commander. So, so he's, if he's following orders, we don't know whose they were. Uh, the, one other thing uh, early in in the war that that struck me as very interesting was your description of the the agreement reached uh, uh, around uh, the town of Monroe, uh, where. At some point, both sides got tired. Uh, the civilians of both sides got tired of the constant butchery and tried to declare a truce. Uh, how did that work out? Well, Ferguson had other plans. And uh, even though they, they called for a truce, for everyone to uh, lay down their weapons and go back to farming and get, get your crops in for the year, uh, it, it didn't last very long at all. But they, they had posted this everywhere. Ferguson was well aware of it and just could have cared less. Uh, got the opportunity to kill some of the guys he was looking for during it. So... So, so as far as he was concerned, he, he just resumed carrying on. So he doesn't listen to Confederate officers. He doesn't listen to the community in terms of a truce. Um, and as you point out, the, the person he, he killed in the aftermath of the Battle of Saltville was in a Confederate hospital guarded by Confederate soldiers, and he just walked right in and committed his murder. And he was actually, uh, after the battle, the Union troops, complained and actually came uh, across on a truce boat to complain officially to Robert E. Lee at Petersburg about what had happened at Saltville. Uh, Breckenridge, John C. Breckenridge, was the overall Confederate commander there and had ordered all these executions, especially of captured African-American troops, to, be, to, to end. Uh, afterwards, the Union commander, General Stephen Burbridge, uh, complained directly, and it made it all the way to Lee, and Lee ordered that any uh, Confederates involved in this or general officers involved in this should be held for trial. The Confederates actually arrested Ferguson after these murders at Saltville and held him for trial, but he was released at the time of Appomattox due to lack of functioning court system. And I imagine the uh, Confederacy by the time of Appomattox had had other things on its mind than, than enforcing military law within its ranks. And I seriously doubt they would have found very many witness, Southern witnesses willing to testify against Ferguson. No. And, and if anything, out of self-preservation, that's not somebody I'd want to testify against. Absolutely. Well, the, um, 
you mentioned several times the Battle of Saltville, and uh, what I'd like to do is come back to that in just a minute and, and tell our listeners a little bit about what happened there. Uh, we'll do that in just a minute when we come back from a break on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas D. Mays, author of Cumberland Blood, Champ Ferguson's Civil War. Uh, the story of a notorious Confederate guerrilla. A few uh, months ago on the show, we did a, uh, a discussion of, of Bill Anderson, uh, a, a violent and, and uh, uh, incredibly cruel uh, guerrilla fighter in Missouri. And uh, I thought uh, that he was a pretty dislikable character, uh, but he, he's... Uh, sort of a Mr. Rogers next to Champ Ferguson, who, uh, in in uh, in, the, in his career, uh, as, as this book portrays, rarely fights a, a stand-up fight, uh, shooting at other armed men, but is quite successful in shooting people down uh, when they are incapacitated, uh, when they are unarmed, when they are in front of their wives and children, uh, when they are in a hospital bed. Uh, then Ferguson is at his brave best and is able to. Uh, kill with impunity. One incident, instance where Ferguson is not alone in killing helpless people is the aftermath of the Battle of Saltville, uh, which uh, in, in which Ferguson played a played a role. Uh, Tom, could you tell tell us about that battle? When did it take place, and and where, and how? Uh, why do we know about it today? Uh, Saltville was one of those small little battles that occurred in 1864 that just seemed to cover every single county in Virginia. Uh, the reason this sticks out was because it had been a Union target for quite some time. Saltville was near the rail line, and Saltville, from colonial period, the Native Americans understood it more than anyone else, was a site of salt brine wells and inland for the Confederacy away from the oceans. They had no salt, which was as critical for their economy as oil is for ours. Uh, and Saltville became the number one producer of inland salt for the Confederacy. There were several uh, salts made on the wells during the war, and this was one of them. This was started by Stephen Gano Burbridge, the military governor of Kentucky, in October 1864. And what really makes this event stand out was because uh, Burbridge brought along African-American troops who hadn't even really been mustered into service yet, all former slaves, members of the future 5th United States and 6th United States colored cavalry. They were literally given weapons, put on untrained horses, and sent out into this battle. Uh, the aftermath of the battle, and subject to my first book, which I'll shamelessly plug, The Saltville Massacre, the uh, black troops who were captured at the, after the defeat of uh, the Union forces were mostly put to death, and the the most damning uh, accusations against them are the memoirs and letters left by the Confederates who were involved in the killing. Ferguson was placed there by witnesses at his trial, 
and witnesses went into detail, uh, union witnesses as well, several union witnesses went into detail of Champ Ferguson walking the battlefield and asking wounded white prisoners, why did you come here to fight with a damn N-word? and executing him in, 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 in the, the battlefield itself, which eventually led to the killing of Smith and black troops as well, wounded black troops at Emory and Henry Hospital. The odd part about the killing of the black troops is they could never be named. The muster rolls didn't even exist with the U.S. Colored Cavalry at that time. There's no official list of, uh, at this point, Champ Ferguson killed Bill Smith. Uh, and Ferguson, oddly enough, was acquitted of the killing of black troops on the battlefield at Saltville, and I think the biggest reason is no one could be named directly. So, I mean, it's it's consistent, I suppose, with Ferguson's record that uh, that here at Saltville, where you have a massacre, a sort of Fort Pillow-type event where uh, Confederate soldiers are killing uh, wounded and helpless black Union soldiers, uh, even there, where, where atrocity is widespread, Ferguson has to go one better and not only kill uh, black, but also white soldiers, just for guilt by association. Yes. Uh, and then, and then, as you described uh, in our earlier segment, he walks into the hospital uh, past Confederate guards who are maintaining order. There's Union and, I assume, Confederate soldiers both recuperating in, in the hospital after the battle, and and goes up to uh, the, the one soldier he has a, a grudge against and kills him. And that's that's the last straw. Uh, that uh, even the Confederate authorities have to take notice of somebody who's walking around shooting people uh, in a hospital. Hitting the, the newspapers when the word finally reaches out. First, the Union Army has to is completely destroyed and wanders back into Kentucky. But when the word finally hits the papers and the grievances are filed, uh, they had to act, and they did act. But at first, the uh, Confederates were quite proud of the of the results of Saltville, and I found the original uh, Richmond newspapers and editorial accounts, uh, they knew, they were quite proud of the racial disparity in numbers of wounded prisoners, and made that real clear. So they, they, they had to know when you have very few prisoners and very few wounded and lots of dead, uh, yeah. something's going on. Um, so after this, uh, Ferguson returns to his, his home stomping grounds and resumes his activities, uh, killing individuals when he can. But the war is just about running out here. Um, what happens in 1865? Yeah, the Confederates release him, and I even found the order in doing so. I think it was by Eccles, if I have to look back. And he went back to Kentucky, or Tennessee, I'm sorry. Almost everyone was accepting the exact same uh, terms as Lee, even the guerrillas were accepting this, some finding that it'd be untenable for them to return to their homes because they were surrounded by former Unionists they fought. Many of these guys simply packed up, put GTT on their doors, and they went to Texas. Uh, Ferguson decided when he returned back, he still had his local war to fight, and that was especially against Tinker Dave Betty and his extended family a little bit east of Sparta, Tennessee, and well after Appomattox, there's a major firefight between Ferguson and Tinker Dave, where Ferguson almost kills him, which just absolutely infuriates Union authorities, and at that point, Ferguson gave up any chance at all of getting a parole or being received uh, under the same terms as Lee, 
and at that point he's arrested and put up on charges. So, so after the war ends, he's still fighting his his private war. Yes. The the other guerrillas uh, turn themselves in. They they receive, as you said, the terms that that Grant gives to Lee at Appomattox. But there is still uh, Ferguson out there. How do they finally catch him? That's one of the uh, the supporters of Ferguson, and there are quite a few. Uh, point out that uh, the off- Union officers in charge misled him. They told him to go home, no harm will come to you, and if we need to talk to you, we'll call for you. Supposedly they called for him under no pretense at all of arresting him, and then they took him uh, and took him prisoner. So he, yeah. he was led to believe that he could be able to peacefully coexist and would be able to talk to them when the moment arose, and that's not what they had in mind. And instead he is put on trial. He's taken to Nashville, and the trial is interesting, too, because it's one of these issues we've been dealing with in this country since 2005, and that's what to do with civilian combatants who are not really part of the military. And at this point, at the end of the war, Ferguson's counsel, and he found some pro-Confederate lawyers who would defend him, uh, stated that, you know, the war is over, hostilities have ended, this should be in the civil courts. Uh, but Lincoln had made it clear throughout the war, civilians or military, if he wants a military tribunal, he'll use it. And he had actually overruled the Supreme Court in stating and telling his officers, just ignore those guys, finish the trial. And he did that many times during the war. I don't know if Lincoln had any really first-hand knowledge of the uh, well, by this time, he's long gone anyway. By the time uh, uh, Ferguson is brought forward, so th- there's no way Lincoln could have had an order to try him with a military tribunal, but it goes back to what they've been doing the entire war with prisoners caught by the Union Army. So, given a, a, a court-martial, even though the war is over. And, uh, and John Wilkes Booth similarly received a military trial exactly uh, after the war. You point out, though, that uh, it, it's not a kangaroo court. They're, they do follow due process. They do offer the defense the chance to call witnesses. They just can't find any. And I'm absolutely convinced if he was given a civil trial, civilian, not civil, civilian trial, in the courts of Nashville with the pro-union population they could find for the jury, it would have lasted long enough for them to find a rope in a tree. Instead, this thing went over much of the summer of 1865 into the fall, and it's followed by the whole country, while witness after witness after witness testifies. And the guys who were involved in the trial, these officers had long and outstanding careers in the Union Army. These are just not a bunch of local, uh, uh, not a jury of his peers, I'll put it that way. And they convict him and sentence him to be hanged, uh, which he is. You make an interesting point here that anyone listening to this show knows uh, the answer to the question, who was the only Confederate to be you know, executed after the war for war crimes, and everyone points to Henry Wirtz at Andersonville. Um, but, but what about Ferguson? And you named several others. Uh, there are many, many, many uh, Confederate guerrillas who are put to death during the war by military tribunal, uh, by the Union government. So, uh, yeah, it would be real tempting to say Wirtz and, and Ferguson are the only, but if you look at the entire war, no, there's quite a few. Uh, those guys who tried to set the fires in New York City with, with the guerrilla attack, they're put to death. Uh, and there's a whole list of others. If you look at Ferguson's career overall, what kind of effect would you say it had 
on the war. Uh, did it have any military effect at all? That's a. We could then go into the larger question of guerrilla war, and, and just defining it is really hard. For on, on, on one extreme, you have uh, John Singleton Mosby, who fought in what we call guerrilla style today, but these guys did wear uniforms. They were legally authorized under the Partisan Ranger Act. They did answer to a chain of command, and I think they were quite effective in keeping large numbers of Union troops in and around Loudoun County rather than campaigning with the Union uh, Army of the Potomac. Ferguson's the exact opposite extreme, where we have an isolated little corner where there's no civil or military law on either side. You've got troops were diverted to swing through and try to clean them out. Yes, they eventually do that in many ways, but whether or not any, he probably did more to bring down the Confederacy in that area and support for the Confederacy than anything else. So, not uh, neither a successful political nor a military effect. Um, the the question that people often uh, ask, the question I ask my students uh, at the end of the Civil War course, is why the Confederacy didn't follow Jefferson Davis's advice after Appomattox, why they followed Lee's advice to, uh, uh, to stop fighting, uh, to go back to their farms and, and, and become peaceable citizens, whereas Davis and, and some other Confederate diehards said, now we fight a guerrilla war, we go to the mountains and the swamps. Um, uh, Tram Ferguson did that. He kept fighting his war after Appomattox. Uh, why didn't others do that? That is just a fascinating question because I would like to know how well-known Lee's words were. They, they certainly did carry through the element of what was left of the Army of Northern Virginia as these guys returned home. They certainly remembered the, the Lee conversation right at Appomattox over whether or not we should head for the hills and continue this. Uh, I would like to think it was Lee's decision at Appomattox to lay down their arms and go home and be good citizens, and how that just spread throughout the South as these guys went home. However, violence does reappear with the Klan and groups later on, but it's not violence meant to continue the same cause of secession. This is racial motivation now and keeping white control of the South. And I guess that would lead to another whole discussion as to what extent secession was intended to guarantee that as well. But yeah. the, uh, I guess the point is well made that, that, that Reconstruction does actually does represent a continuation of guerrilla uh, struggle in a lot of parts of the South. Let me ask one last question that came up as I was reading this. Um, the last book I wrote was about Abraham Lincoln, and I enjoyed spending time in the company of Lincoln uh, through his words and, and thought it, uh, it felt like I was uh, you know, a better person to some extent for the opportunity to share his thoughts. Uh, what is it like to spend the time it takes to write a book about someone like Ferguson? It reminds me of what my old mentor, Grady McWhinney, used to say. Uh, he became known for working on his dissertation and finally publishing the first half of a biography of a distant relative of mine named Braxton Bragg. My mother was a Bragg. And everyone would ask him, Grady, why haven't you finished the second half of this two-volume life? And he said, if you knew what this guy was like and had to live with him every day, you'd understand why I've written five other books and haven't gone back to that. 
Uh, I understand what Grady felt. Now, this guy, I, I, I tried to find redeeming qualities about him. He was very loyal to his friends. Uh, he, he was very loyal to the guys he rode with, uh, to his family. Uh, but uh, beyond that, it, it could be a chore sometimes. Well, well, it, it's a, a chore well accomplished, and I'm glad I didn't have to do it, but I appreciate that uh, that you did, and I, I thought it was very interesting. It is um, it is a relatively slender book, which I certainly appreciate uh, in the days when some people write these uh, uh, minute histories of engagements with every regiment's uh, footsteps traced uh, foot by foot. Uh, you know, I, I have a taste for that. I'll read those sometimes, but uh, you know, 600 pages of one day at Gettysburg goes a long way with me. I don't need to do that too often. Um, here we have a book that gets uh, tells a fascinating story uh, of a character not particularly well known uh, and and particularly disagreeable, but but fascinating nonetheless. And, and I thought it was a, a very interesting read. I'm so, glad you enjoy it. When I tell people that I have a portrait of Champ Ferguson hanging in my dining room, they're kind of stunned <laughs> until they arrive in my dining room and notice I have a portrait of him hanging from a rope in my dining room. Ah, well, there we go. Well, that makes sense. Um, Tom, thank you very much for being on the show today. Enjoyed the book. My pleasure. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Cumberland Blood, Champ Ferguson's Civil War. I know you'll enjoy that. And I appreciate you listening, as always, to Civil War Talk Radio. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.